Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Around the world, countries are still struggling with COVID-19. For some, like India, waves of acute infections have overrun healthcare systems with tragic consequences. For other countries, attention is now turning to the brutal aftershock, long COVID. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And also coming up on today's show, new hope in the fight against malaria. If you were able to reduce malaria infections by 75%, you would be saving hundreds of thousands of lives each year. And how the multifarious sounds of nature might be good for your health. What came out was a really striking, positive health benefit of listening to natural sounds. First, in many countries where the pandemic is waning, more data is emerging about long-term symptoms which persist after a COVID-19 infection. Britain's Office for National Statistics estimates that 14% of people who tested positive for COVID-19 have symptoms that linger for more than three months. In February 2021, 1.5% of the working-age adults in Britain reported long COVID symptoms. And this data does not take into account the surge of infections during the country's second wave. The evidence that is emerging is deeply troubling. Hundreds of millions of people have been infected globally. Long COVID presents another public health catastrophe, but one that is in the shadows because it is chronic, not acute. On Babbage last November, we spoke to Seema Charters, a doctor in the northwest of England. I contracted COVID on the 2nd of June. I came out at the other end from COVID after hospital admission and uh, intensive care treatment. And uh, I went into long COVID category. We caught up with Seema this week. And in the last uh, four weeks, I'm doing my full-time job at such. Uh, I made some adjustments in my job plan. Uh, I used to work on uh, weekends as well, which I've taken off from my job plan. My department was kind enough to give me like a prolonged phase return. So every week I used to have a meeting with my manager and I will let him know what I would like to do or what I can do next week. Because it was very difficult for me to judge whether I'll be able to cope with XYZ. When I joined work initially, it was very overwhelming to be away from work for nearly six months. And the first few days were quite bad. I used to be quite fatigued and all the symptoms will come back. But slowly, slowly, I have turned the corner, I feel. I still don't feel 100% well enough, but it's not as bad as before, definitely. Last year, Seema told us about her range of symptoms, from fatigue to chest and stomach pains, even hair loss. The stomach complaints, they are less, but they are not gone yet. My hair haven't grown much. They've gone to kind of sleep, my hair follicles. 
and the chest tightness i still get bit short of breath uh, if i walk one flight of stairs sima is currently self managing her symptoms after all she's a doctor but like many other long covid patients there are lots of uncertainties i take some treatment like antihistaminics and some supplements just presuming that i may have hyperinflammation i'm still dosing myself with all these things uh, it's really difficult to know and i really hope and hope it doesn't go into that chronicity that after 12 months also you have got these lingering symptoms but what i've seen on patient support groups that there is a percentage of people who have continued to experience symptoms and have been found their way out people with long covid experience a wide variety of symptoms slavia chenkova is the economist healthcare correspondent which is why it took some time for clinicians to recognize long covid or post covid syndrome which is now formally called as a distinct medical condition in britain the national institute of care excellence called nice has defined post covid syndrome as symptoms associated with an initial infection by sars-cov-2 the virus that causes covid-19 that lasts for more than 12 weeks and those should be symptoms that are not explained by an alternative diagnosis but the health body that issued this definition has not issued a specific list of symptoms so the definition is left broad and open for now okay but the scientists and the medical professionals themselves now broadly know what those symptoms are Yes, well there are many of them. A roundup organized by some patient groups found more than 200 symptoms affecting any part of the body you can think of. But any given patient typically has several symptoms at a time and the most debilitating usually are one of three, either severe breathlessness, fatigue or brain fog. And some experts have grouped these into three types of patients so those who have predominantly exercise intolerance meaning that they feel out of breath and very exhausted even from small tasks that involve physical activities such as you know making lunch the second group is people who have predominantly cognitive complaints uh, in the form of brain fog or memory problems and the third group of patients are characterized by problems with the autonomic nervous system which is a set of nerves that controls various body functions things like heartbeat breathing digestion so patients in this group suffer from symptoms such as heart palpitations or dizziness so the research is ongoing but what are the current hypotheses to explain these symptoms there are several hypotheses one is that long covid is a persistent viral infection so the virus is hiding somewhere in the body and these patients are not infectious so when you test them they test negative but they've never managed to clear the virus completely the virus in some form or shape has been found in some body fluids for months after infection so evidence is starting to emerge but we don't know yet whether that happens with most long covid patients because oftentimes in these studies the patients are perfectly healthy that's so interesting so what are the other theories another hypothesis is that what we are seeing is an autoimmune disorder 
So this means that the virus has cleared, but it caused something to go awry with the immune system. So it now attacks some of the body's own tissues and organs. And there is a growing body of evidence that backs this idea, just based on people's symptoms and certain laboratory tests that have found, for example, a wide variety of autoantibodies, which are found uh, in some autoimmune diseases. And we heard from Seema, the doctor and long COVID patient, that it could be due to damage caused by inflammation. Yes, that's right. So what this means is the fight put up by the body against the COVID-19 itself caused damage to certain organs, and that's what makes people ill now. So it could be damages to some parts of the autonomic nervous system or the blood vessels, which now maybe cannot carry blood very well to the brain. So that may explain the brain fog. So that's also a hypothesis which is supported by, by many doctors. So regardless of how we try to explain the cause behind the symptoms, how are researchers trying to find treatments to help those with long COVID? Treatments eventually will depend on what the cause of the illness is. Pretty much everyone thinks that there are several different types of long COVID patients. It's not any one thing. But if it turns out to be persistent viral infection, then we'll be searching for suitable antiviral drugs. And treatment would then consist of either a defined course of medication that clears the virus completely, as we now have for hepatitis C, for example, or drugs that people will just have to take continuously to suppress the virus, as people with HIV AIDS are doing. Now, if it's an autoimmune problem, treatments for immune disorders exist already, and uh, some of them may work for long COVID. So as soon as scientists define the specific immune abnormality in these patients, treatments should become clear quickly. Okay, so that's for the future of treatments. But long COVID is a problem now. So what can we do to help those people who have the symptoms right now? At the moment, the only treatment available is rehabilitation. So helping people change behavior or things they do in their daily lives that help them cope better with their symptoms and just be able to function a little bit more. I spoke to someone in New York who runs a rehabilitation clinic at the hospital. So after an average of 150 days of rehab, which includes two sessions each week with a therapist, plus remote follow-up, plus people doing lots of exercises at home, patients report something like 30-40% improvement in fatigue levels. So, you know, out of about 100 patients that they were tracking for research purposes, only three said they had fully recovered. So it's a lot of work for, you know, some improvement in functionality. So it's, it's a poorly understood condition with no cure, and it'll affect millions of people of working age globally. In effect, what you're describing is an entirely new pandemic. So I guess it leads me to ask the question, what can governments and healthcare systems and employers do about it? Yeah, I think it's right to, to call it, you know, the aftermath of the pandemic, because it will be really the long tail of it. When the pandemic is over, we'll still have all these people who are quite unwell. So what's important now, and I stress now, is that healthcare systems and employers assist patients with long COVID to get 
prompt rehabilitation care. And if they get prompt care, chances of improvement are better. Employers, for their part, must rethink how to accommodate workers with a disability that flares up in unpredictable ways. I would still say that more needs to be done in terms of vocational rehabilitation. Because what I've realized is even my occupational health department were not proactive enough to contact me and facilitate my phase return. I had to kind of find my own way. There got to be some mechanisms in place. There need to be recognition that uh, you need readjustments to reflect the relapsing and remitting nature of this condition. And the phase return needs to be longer than four to six weeks. So these two things are really important. I think the patients are getting believed when they say that they have long COVID. But again, we have this problem of whether these people were tested or not. And some people don't believe that you have long COVID if you're not tested and you were not positive. Recently, patient-led research showed that only 27% of people were able to come back to full-time employment. And it, it has got lots of implications, especially for healthcare, if the doctors are not able to work full-time because of long COVID condition, or if the nurses are not going to come back to full-time work, then we will have a massive shortage of healthcare professionals. So I think we have to really proactively make sure that these people come back to work at whatever level. They stay in work, they are employed, but one has to look fully into this and not treat a long COVID return as any other return to work business. And then, of course, governments have a role to play. They should offer schemes to encourage these with incentives for both workers and employers. Slovea Chenkova, thank you. Thank you, Ken. Our thanks also to Seema Charters. You can hear her experience with long COVID by scrolling back to Babbage from November 11th, 2020. The episode is called In It for the Long Haulers. And you can read Slavea's full analysis on the current state of long COVID research by subscribing to The Economist. Also in this week's edition, we take a look at how TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, has mastered the geopolitics of chipmaking. Babbage listeners can get the best introductory subscription offer by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Next, malaria is one of the world's most devastating diseases. It's caused by five species of plasmodium parasites and is injected into humans via the female Anopheles mosquito. These types of parasites are good at evading the immune system, which sadly is why the world is yet to eliminate malaria. In the year 2000, over 800,000 people died after contracting the disease. As bed nets, drugs, and diagnostic tests have been distributed in malarial zones, epidemics have receded, but not by enough. The World Health Organization estimates that currently more than 400,000 people die as a consequence of the condition. 
and they're mostly young children. But this week, following World Malaria Day, there is new hope in the form of a vaccine. The Jenner Institute in Oxford has been testing a new vaccine in phase two trials. Natasha Loder is the Economist Health Policy Editor. They reckon that it's 77% effective in the children that it was tested in. This malaria vaccine is greatly needed in lower income countries across Africa because most of the hundreds of thousands of people who die from malaria every year are children. So this is fantastic news because that's the first time we've had sight of a vaccine that could really help us with the scourge of malaria. This is such great news. Let me ask, why did it take the world so long to create a malaria vaccine? Well, it turns out that it's actually very, very difficult. And in fact, when we started with the COVID-19 vaccine, what people said was it could be difficult. It could be like malaria. It could be like HIV. It could turn out to be a really tricky problem. Malaria is a parasite. It's not a bacteria. It's not a virus. It's a large organism that kind of floats around in our bloodstream, infecting red blood cells. And so you have to find some way of alerting the immune system to it and targeting it. And because it's such a big organism, relatively big compared to a bacteria or a virus, there's lots of places that you could attack it. And so there's a sort of multiplicity of targets that one could choose. And that's really been the challenge over the years is finding a good target and then making sure that you get a strong enough immune response. And so that's what they've been doing for decades is trying to work this out. That's fantastic. So how are they attacking it and how are they getting the big immune response? Well, this was a question I put to the director of the Jenner Institute, Dr. Adrian Hill himself. So the antigen we chose to target with this vaccine is the circumsporozoite protein, which is a part of the parasite that's injected by the mosquito and has the big advantage that it's very genetically conserved. In other words, there aren't lots of different strains of that antigen that might be a problem with evading the vaccine. So we're not the first people to try to uh, target that. The problem is you need very strong immune responses against it. So you need a very good vaccine technology to get very high antibody levels that will protect against malaria. This news that we've just heard is that you've found that in phase two trials that you have a vaccine that is something like 77% effective. And what's the significance of this vaccine being more than 75% effective? There are two points, really. Firstly, the WHO set 75% as a target for people to aim at in the days when the best result was 40 or 50%. And that seemed like a very distant target. So the WHO said, we'd like that vaccine by 2030, please, at the latest. So 77% in, in 2021 is, is good progress. The other significance, of course, is it means that you're preventing about three quarters of the episodes of malaria in the children you vaccinate. And that's really important when you remember that 400,000 people die from malaria every year. Most of those are in Africa and most of those are young children under five years of age. So if you were able to reduce those malaria infections by 75%, for example, you would be saving hundreds of thousands of lives each year. What's next really for this vaccine? 
So we finished a phase two trial, which, as we've said, looks pretty promising, good safety and high level efficacy. We are now moving on in the coming days to start a phase three trial that we had been preparing for several months. That will be in four countries in Africa, both East and West, Burkina Faso, Mali, Kenya and Tanzania. There'll be a much larger number of children, almost 5,000 in that. And we'll be looking particularly at the safety of the vaccine and asking, can we see the same good efficacy we saw in one place in Burkina Faso in countries around Africa? So, Natasha, once this vaccine undergoes phase three trials and if it's approved by regulators, how do countries go about rolling out the vaccine? Well, you'll need to manufacture it somewhere. And a good place to start looking at that would be at the Serum Institute in India. It's uh, the world's largest vaccine maker. And they're also very good at making vaccines very affordably for the developing world. The technology is certainly something that the Serum Institute could manufacture. The one thing I would also say is that there's an active discussion at the moment about stimulating vaccine manufacturing in Africa. And one of the sort of challenges for creating, you know, new facilities to make vaccines in Africa is that you kind of need an ongoing business model. What are you going to make year in, year out? And a malaria vaccine is a prime candidate, you would think, for something that you could uh, manufacture on the continent. And so I would really love to see, you know, some foundations like the Gates Foundation or the Wellcome Trust, along with financiers and businessmen, get together and really look into the business case for making this vaccine actually in Africa. So I guess the idea here is about biosecurity. If they're making the vaccine year in, year out, and another pathogen comes around that creates a pandemic, Africa can spin on a dime and create a vaccine to prevent the pandemic. That's exactly right. Whenever you build a facility for reasons of health security, you know, to maintain that facility and so that, you know, three years down the line, you get a new government in and they're like, well, why do we have this facility? It doesn't seem to do very much. It makes nothing of any use to us that, you know, you have something that it does make that is useful on an ongoing basis. Do you think that this is going to turn the tide against malaria for good? Well, we're still a long way from getting the results of phase three trials and from you know manufacturing this at scale. But I would say that this is one of the tools that really could drive a nail in the coffin of malaria in many, many countries. And there are lots of countries that have targeted malaria for eradication, just using the tools that we have to hand, bed nets, drugs. And if we have this amazing new tool, I think that we will get there much, much, much faster. That's great news. Natasha, thank you very much. You're welcome, Ken. My colleague Robert Guest is The Economist's foreign editor, and he went to Senegal last year to investigate how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the fight against malaria in Africa. Robert also explored how the disease has shaped history from ancient Rome to the Second World War. You can find that episode of Babbage called The Parasites and the Pandemic from December 23rd, 2020 on your podcast app. Life slowed down for many of us during the pandemic. The usual dreary sounds of the daily commute faded as traffic dropped during the quarantines. The past year has provided a chance to get back in touch with the sounds of nature, whether it's on long countryside walks or listening to birdsong outside our home office. My favorite sound from nature is 
really any bird song, but being from Canada, especially Ontario, I've got to say it's the common loon. There's nothing more haunting than the sound of uh, common loons singing across the lake in the summer. Rachel Buxton is a conservationist biologist at Carleton University in Canada. Her research shows how sounds found in nature might actually bolster mental health. With our study, we did a review of all of the previous research on the effects of natural sounds on health and well-being. We found about 36 different studies and we put them all together. And really what came out was a really striking, positive health benefit of listening to natural sounds. So what you did was a meta-analysis, but I'm stuck with the question, how does one go about researching this? How do you measure these outcomes? Typically, these studies are done in hospital settings or in lab settings. And what researchers do is they'll play back recordings of natural sounds, could be water sounds, the sounds of birds, or mixed natural sounds, the sounds of leaves rustling in the trees and then they play back nothing to another group of people. So they do this and measure health outcomes during, let's say, a medical procedure. So one really neat study looked at people's perceived pain during a really painful surgical procedure while listening to natural sounds versus a group who didn't listen to natural sounds. Or they'll actually stress people out, do some sort of stress test and see how people's capacity for recovering after a stressful situation is. And I think my personal favorite is uh, getting people to do a complex cognitive task, so a, a puzzle while listening to natural sounds versus not. Those that listen to natural sounds tend to perform better doing these more complex tasks than those who aren't. Now there's the tricky issue of causation. How can you be certain that the positive health benefit is coming from listening to the natural sounds rather than the other senses? As far as the studies that we looked at, patients or participants were put into control or treatment groups, so groups that were listening to natural sounds over headphones versus those that weren't. In that case, it's a pretty clear signal. You know, you've removed the visual and olfactory cues from nature, and you're just really isolating that acoustic portion. Do you have any theories on why listening to natural sounds should be leading to all these positive benefits? You can think of it from an evolutionary perspective. So humans tend to attend to patterns that signal danger or safety. And an acoustic environment or sound environment that's full of natural sounds tends to be a pretty good indicator that that's a safe environment. So that allows us to let our guard down. It allows for mental recuperation. And the opposite, so an acoustic environment that is empty or silent or has very few natural sounds, that's a pretty good indicator that something is wrong. And what happens is we become vigilant. So we're surveilling our surroundings, seeing what might be going wrong, and that does not allow for mental recuperation and can actually lead to stress. So what can people do then to improve their health via listening, apart from listening to Babbage? (laughs) 
Well, I would say there's some pretty clear evidence that listening to natural sounds through headphones has some tangible health benefits. However, there's a whole slew of evidence from other research that shows there are plenty of health benefits of the other sensory aspects of nature, of seeing nature, of smelling nature. So really, your best bet is to get outside into nature. Rachel, thank you very much. Ken, thanks for having me. Ah, and thank you for listening to Babbage. And while you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Apple, I wonder what an apple tree sounds like. Or wherever you listen, it really matters. And a final reminder, we're moving. From next week, Babbage will be released every Tuesday, not on Wednesday. So look out for us next Tuesday, May 4th. The producers this week were the amazing Jason Hoskin, the fantastic William Warren, and the editor is the brilliant Sandra Schmueli. I'm the mediocre Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.